This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, where professional readers give voice to articles from Canada's best general interest magazine. I'm your host, Roger Ashby. The history of Christmas carols demonstrates that, in all eras, as with today, popular celebrations often resisted authority-imposed religious celebrations. Paul Berry reads The Surprising History of Christmas Carols. This is an article titled The Surprising History of Christmas Carols by Nora Loreto. Every year, starting in November, I love seeing memes of Mariah Carey's iconic holiday song start popping up in my social media news feeds. Sleigh and tubular bells, white fur trim, Mariah Carey dressed sort of like Mrs. Claus. While I'm not much of a fan of the song, I appreciate that people are excited to listen to the music they've been missing for 11 months. It's All I Want for Christmas is You season. But really, I'm more of a Pogues girl. Even though the Irish punk band's Christmas classic Fairy Tale of New York gets less love online, it instantly launches me into the holiday spirit. Writing in Maclean's in 2018, journalist Stephen Marr proclaimed it the best Christmas song, a bold and incorrect assertion as there are tons of best songs, but it is an excellent song. Its protagonist spends Christmas Eve in a New York City drunk tank, a particularly appropriate way to spend the holidays if we want to get traditional about it. Most people might not count All I Want for Christmas is You or Fairy Tale of New York among the traditional canon of Christmas music. But both of these songs, in their joyousness, expressions of love and longing, catchiness and even the drunkenness of the latter, are closer to the origins of Christmas carols than you might expect. I am a Christmas music nerd. I practiced Christmas music every autumn until I was 20, whether in choirs, concert band, or as a church organist. The music spanned seven centuries from medieval carols to cheesy and catchy pop tunes. Regardless of when they were written and how they are structured, Christmas carols have a timeless authenticity about them. With their rich history, they are equal parts popular, joyous, solemn, religious, and, yes, secular. To some, the secular is profane at Christmas, making the holiday a perennial site for debates over how it should be celebrated. The so-called War on Christmas, a Fox News trope that has become mainstream in the U.S., is how conservative commentators have framed the increasing secularization of the holiday. What this outcry misses is that cultural festivities that mark the winter holidays have always blended the religious and secular celebrations of multiple events, including Christmas, St. Stephen's Day, a day that commemorates St. Stephen, the first Christian martyr and is now more commonly known as Boxing Day, New Year's, and the Epiphany. Aside, it is polite and accurate to wish a Christian happy holidays this time of year, unless you really, really want to only wish them well on one day of many. Over the centuries, as Christmas celebrations shifted between secular and religious festivities, so too did the carols we now associate with the season. And if you listen closely, the songs reveal that the secularization of Christmas isn't destroying it. It's taking the holiday back to its roots. 
Carols have long been fundamental to celebrating the Christmas season, and as such evolved through generations of swinging cultural norms. The traditional carols we know today can be traced back to the carol revival of the early to mid-1800s from music that had been sung for centuries before, but they are also relatively new. It is thought that there were virtually no carols before the year 1200, though the Oxford Book of Carols dates the earliest carols back to the year 1400, or roughly the start of the Renaissance in England, after which they exploded in popularity. It was during this period that music progressed from two-tone polyphonic chanting and songs to the harmonies that laid the foundation for modern Western music. Over the following centuries, as the Protestant Reformation took hold in Europe, carols were influenced by the back and forth between Puritan repression and festive allowances. The Oxford Book of Carols, a definitive anthology, was published in 1928 by Percy Dearmer, Martin Shaw, and Rafe von Williams. The book features what the authors thought were the finest carols, mostly from the British Isles, but also France, Germany, and other European countries. We always had a copy of the Oxford Book of Carols at home, and last Christmas I sat down at the piano and promised myself I'd play every song in the book. I barely made it past the introduction, as I was fascinated by Dearmer's description of the history of carols in England. The Oxford Book of Carols explains where many of the songs, lyrics, and tunes included came from. The authors drew from archival records, such as antiquarian William Sandys's 1833 anthology Christmas Carols Ancient and Modern, and also from memories. They went into the English countryside, asked people to sing songs to them, and wrote them down. Vaughan Williams and Shaw arranged many of the tunes into harmonies that remain standard to this day. Carols are simple songs that can be sung in harmony or not, accompanied by a keyboard or strings and usually written to praise God and used within religious Christian service. But not always. When carols first appeared, they were closer to today's pop music than anything else, a mix of dance music and religious worship, drawing on folk influences and reflecting the politics of the time. Many carols were sung for other festivals or to welcome spring and celebrate May Day. In the preface to the Oxford Book of Carols, Dearmer, a priest and committed socialist, explains that carols first appeared in contrast to solemn melodies that were standard within church walls, forming the foundation of modern Western music. Because the carol was based upon dance music, it did not appear until the close of the long Puritan era, which lasted through the Dark Ages and far into the medieval period, he writes. The carol was in fact a sign of the emancipation of the people from the old Puritanism, which had for so many centuries suppressed the dance and the drama, denounced communal singing, and warred against the tendency of the people to disport themselves in church on the festivals. Throughout the 1400s in England, another form of music grew alongside the carol, the ballad. Both were types of narrative songs with descriptive lyrics. The songwriters were often poor, though ballads were also popular among the elite. Carols often took ballad form, writes Dearmer, employing what's known as common measure, an arrangement of poetic stanzas of four lines alternating between eight and six syllables. 
think, O little town of Bethlehem. It isn't an accident that these two genres emerged together at a time when storytelling, celebration, joyousness, and lamentation were finding new expression in music. Carols, in particular, became synonymous with festive celebrations, especially Christmas, Dearmer writes, and they often made reference to gathering, eating, and being merry. The carol Make We Merry, a secular tune written around the early 1500s, calls for men to come to the Christmas festival to sing. If a man can't sing, he should present another fun activity. If he can't do that either, he is to be sent to the stocks and dealt with by the Lord of Misrule. While the title varied depending on the region, the Lord of Misrule was often appointed to be a king of fools who oversaw Christmas festivities over the usual twelve-day period. But in 1647, England's Puritan Parliament banned Christmas Day festivities, among other celebrations. It was probably the closest one has ever been to an actual war on Christmas. It was waged by Protestants, Puritans in particular, against a holiday that had become known for its drunkenness and debauchery, and its association with Catholicism. The ban even included private celebrations at home and triggered riots against the government. Dearmer quotes a political tract from 1656 that described the Christmas festival as the old heathen's feasting day, in honor to Saturn, their idol god, the papist's massing day, the profane man's ranting day, the superstitious man's idol day, the multitude's idol day. Satan's working day, the true Christian man's fasting day. The tract goes on to say that no one thing more hindereth the gospel work all the year long than doth the observation of the idle day once in a year. Under Puritan rule, Christmas was to be a time of fasting, not one of feasting. Carols and other Christmas traditions had to go underground. They were preserved in folk song, writes Dearmer, on crudely written broadsheets. Though the ban was repealed after Charles II took the English throne in 1660, carols did not make an immediate comeback among mainstream society. But rural people continued to sing the old songs and pass them down the generations. Songs like In Dulce Jubilo, Good Christian Men Rejoice, the Boar's Head Carol and the First Noel draw their roots from before this prohibition and are still widely sung in religious ceremonies and secular concerts alike. A political periodical published in 1653 lamented the anti-Christmas decree by describing what a festival looked like before the ban. In addition to sitting round a fire and eating, the celebrants sang, Let's dance and sing and make good cheer, for Christmas comes but once a year. Draw hogshead dry, let flagons fly, for now the bells shall ring, whilst we endeavor to make good the title against a king. One description of Christmas festivities written shortly after the ban ended appears in the introduction to Sandus's 1833 carol anthology. He references a ship chaplain's description of Christmas. The festivities started with trumpeting at the doors of each of the seamen's cabins. We had excellent good fare, a rib of beef, plum puddings, minced pies, etc., and plenty of good wines of several sorts. 
drank healths to the king, to our wives and friends, and ended the day with much civil mirth. Sandys quotes one observer in the early 1700s saying that he hoped that Britons would reignite the Christmas celebration of yore. This great festival was in former times kept with so much freedom and openness of heart that every one in the country where a gentleman resided possessed at least a day of pleasure in the Christmas holy days. Though carols were not popular during the 1700s, there were a few new songs written. But they were mere eating songs about pork and pudding, writes Dearmer. Christmas pudding is another traditional Christmas tenet, referenced still in carols today that dates back to medieval times. Peasants would mix suet, dried fruit, spices, and a few other ingredients into animal intestines as a means of preservation. When I think back to my grandmother's Christmas pudding, suet and all, I think back to the lyric, Now Bring Us Some Figgy Pudding, written in 1935 by organist and conductor Arthur Worrell. The tune of We Wish You a Merry Christmas is said to have come from West Britain, but had never been widely sung before that. Carols would not reappear popularly for more than a century. Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol, a book which is not actually about singing unless you know it only from the Muppets, was published around the same time as the first of two Christmas carol revivals in the 1800s, even though, as Dearmer notes, when Dickens was a child, the carol seemed to be on the edge of extinction. Sandus's 1833 Christmas Carols Ancient and Modern set off a revival of Christmas music that laid the foundation for where we find ourselves today, inside a Walmart and hearing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, sung by Amy Grant, if we're lucky. This particular carol was written during that dead carol century, in 1739, though eventually set to the music we know today, written by Felix Mendelssohn. In America, Christmas didn't become a public holiday until 1836. Before that, it was outlawed for a time by the Puritans who settled in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. But in other parts of what is now the U.S., many immigrants from the British Isles who did have a tradition of the holiday maintained their celebrations until the festivities went mainstream. Sandus's book codified many songs that had been sung during the holidays and kept alive by older people living in villages. Several other anthologies were published in its wake, bringing folk tunes, older carols, tunes that had been lost, and newly written pieces back into popularity. And wherever there was caroling, there was a party. Key to these widespread parties, especially before the Industrial Revolution, was the fact that people didn't work during the holidays. It was the one time of year when workers could rest. Authorities did their best to limit the celebrations to just the twelve days of Christmas, Dearmer writes, from December 25th until the Epiphany on January 6th. Some laborers and apprentices even celebrated a fake holiday called St. Distaff's Day on January 7th, when young men would sneak in an extra day off by setting fire to the piles of flax local women had gathered to spin for cloth. The women would retaliate by dumping water over the men's heads. After the Epiphany, Dearmer writes, laborers and apprentices were required to settle down to work again for the rest of the year. Reluctantly, poor things. It was debauchery that Jerry Bowler, 
writing in his 2016 book Christmas in the Crosshairs, 2,000 Years of Denouncing and Defending the World's Most Celebrated Holiday, explains is the reason the Santa Claus tradition was created. Twenty-four years before Sandus's anthology was published, a movement had grown in New York City to create a jolly old elf called St. Nicholas, a figure borrowed from Dutch traditions. Bowler suggests that one of the benefits of introducing St. Nick was reorienting the holiday from blistering partying to a family-friendly affair. Decent folk attended church, hosted elegant balls, and stayed indoors. In other quarters, the season was marked by vulgarity and violence, he writes. Among the working class during the 19th century, though, Christmas remained a time to go wild. That going wild would increasingly be accompanied by carols, which, by the turn of the 20th century, were published in some newspapers to encourage common singing. In the early 1800s, the old custom of mummering reached Newfoundland. This holiday tradition, celebrated on St. Stephen's Day in Ireland, saw individuals disguise themselves and try to get their neighbors to guess who they were as they went door to door. Think of it as aggressive caroling with Halloween costumes. It became a raucous, riotous practice. After the revelry turned to violence and even murder in 1860, the government restricted the practice and then banned it outright. That ban would be lifted over a century later, and the tradition has since made a comeback. Lively secular carols like Gloucestershire Wassail hearken to some of the tamer wandering parties. Vaughan Williams learned the song after it was sung to him by an old person in the country as part of his research for the Oxford Book of Carols. Wassailers, wandering singing partiers, would sing, carrying a great bowl dressed up with garlands and ribbon. Gloucestershire Wassail is lively, written in G major and three-quarter time. Wassail, wassail all over the town, our toast it is white and our ale it is brown. Our bowl it is made of the white maple tree, with the wassailing bowl we'll drink to thee. It goes on to toast two horses named Cherry and Dobbin, and three cows named Broad May, Philpale, and Collie. Some songs with secular roots adopted a religious meaning, including the wonderful My Dancing Day carol, with lyrics that remind me of Mariah Carey asking Santa for her baby. Tomorrow shall be my dancing day. I would my true love did so chance to see the legend of my play, to call my true love to my dance. Sing, O oh my love, O oh my love, my love, my love. This have I done for my true love. The carol was first published in the 1833 Sandus Anthology, but many experts think the tune might be far older, preserved in wooden broadsheets during the years when celebrations went underground. Then there are songs that we associate with Christmas, but that celebrate other aspects of the holiday, such as Deck the Halls. This traditional Welsh tune called Nosgallen goes back to at least the 1700s and reminds us to look forward as we celebrate the old year. The original lyrics in Welsh would fit very well in modern popular music, minus the fa-la-la-la-las. Oh, how soft my fair one's bosom! Oh, how sweet the grove in blossom! Oh, how blessed are the blisses, words of love and mutual kisses. The lyrics we know were written in 1862. Fast away the old year passes. Hail the new, ye lads and lasses. 
laughing, quaffing altogether, heedless of the wind and weather. Though it started out as a good old-fashioned boob carol, there was also a religious version of the song published in the Oxford Book of Carols, with lyrics attributed to K.E. Roberts. Roberts subbed out the fa-la-la-la-las with All Ya Mountains Praise the Lord. Traditional secular music has remained a key part of the Christmas music canon. There's Jingle Bells, for example, a song that isn't about Christmas at all, and The Twelve Days of Christmas. One of my favorites, Carol of the Bells, wasn't a Christmas song, but rather a Ukrainian folk song to wish people good cheer in the new year. It was usually sung by teenage girls who would be rewarded with various treats. I Saw Three Ships is another song whose tune appeared in Sandus's anthology but likely dates back to an English folk song that traveling singers would perform in the Middle Ages. In a carol anthology published in 1905, John Camden Houghton wrote that the song has always been a great favorite with the illiterate and from its quaintness will be found not displeasing to the more refined. When I started looking into the history of carols, I didn't realize that the region in England among the farmers in Devonshire was, at least according to Sandus, one of the regions where carols were aggressively protected during the years of prohibition in the 17th century. Quoting a 1653 text, Sandus writes that Father Christmas's best and freest welcome with some kind of country farmers was in Devonshire, where the customs are still so zealously preserved, he wrote. This is where my mother's family is from. They lived there until two generations later they came to colonize Canada as farmers. In England, they never owned their own land, according to family lore. In Canada, where white farmers were critical to building the Canadian project, they were given their own farm. My family settled in Canada and brought its traditions to a land that had had ceremonies, feasts, and parties as part of its rhythm for time immemorial. Settlers' celebrations became the norm as part of creating a white, Christian society on top of a complex system of nations and relations that were already here. The introduction of Christmas in Canada is part of that process of colonization. Here, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one of the few carols that Canada can lay claim to, Jesus Ahatonia, or the Huron Carol. The words were written by French colonizer Jean de Brébeuf as he lived and proselytized among the Huron-Wendat people around 1642. Brébeuf borrowed the tune from an old French melody and wrote the song in Wendat. Estenya yunde tsunwe, Jesus ahatonya, goes the first line. One hundred years later, a French priest living in Lorette near Quebec City learned the song from Wendat people, and it was later translated into French. It remains a standard carol in English, French, and Wendat. Reconciling the role that religion plays in colonization is not easy, especially not at a time of the year when we are reminded about Christmas in every shop we enter, in every ad, and at dreaded office holiday parties. It's important to recognize this. These have become the dominant traditions in Canada in no small part thanks to genocide. But underneath the politics that made Christmas hegemonic in North America, there is a spirit of collective celebration that can be cherished as well, a solidarity among all people and a desire for a better year than the one that came before it. Despite the changing political times that influenced how Christmas was to be celebrated, 
average people did find ways to celebrate together. The winter holidays are among the few moments in the year when we stop and reflect on the passage of time. When we unite our voices in song, we connect with one another at a deeper level. I think of Dearmer, dedicated not only to the Church of England but also to socialism. He must have faced each new year the same way that I do, committing myself to making a better world, resting up for another year of struggle, and connecting with family and friends in love and celebration. The rural people who protected the carols we sing today have given us an incredible gift. The songs capture what is to me the true Christmas spirit, a spirit that is both restful and fun, a spirit for which we throw great parties and spend time with our neighbors, a spirit that moves us to sing together for brew or bread, far away from the commercial demands of the modern holiday. In that spirit, I'm pulled into my actual favorite song of the season, not a Christmas tune, but one that celebrates December 26th, The St. Stephen's Day Murders by Elvis Costello, because, as Costello belts out, for that is the time to eat, drink, and be merry, till the beer is all spilled and the whiskey has flowed, and the whole family tree you neglected to bury are feeding their faces until they explode. That was an article titled The Surprising History of Christmas Carols by Nora Loreto. You've been listening to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, produced by Don Dickinson, audio engineering by Bill Shackleton and Jacob Shemansky. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank, and I'm your host, Roger Ashby. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating and review, and subscribe for more. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.